0: I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I have a fun one today. I have uh, Julie McDonnell. Julie is the co-founder, CEO of Halu. Halu is a company that combines uh, latest technology with extension, extensive legal knowledge to provide easy access to brand protection. Uh, Julie was a senior-level lawyer who specialized in trademark, intellectual property, law, and, and I saw you on a list of uh, of metaverse lawyers, which we will definitely dive into at some point, Julie. I know Julie is also an advocate and activist in the area of civil liberties, human rights, indigenous rights, and children rights, and uh, the lucky adopted mother to three children uh, who were previously in the foster care system. So Julie, once again, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you again for having me. It's wonderful.
0: So Julie, before we got going, you had mentioned that you're from the way up north, Sudbury. You know, I, uh, I I've been there once in my life, and of course did the, the traditional go to the science center and, and the nickel mine. But would love to hear a little more about you know your early childhood. I'm always fascinated by the origination story. So you know, if we can start you know probably a little earlier than most podcasts that you uh, you attend, I'd love to hear a little more.
1: Yeah, well, I am from actual north, <laughs> although we are sort of the big southern city in that part of uh, Ontario for sure in Sudbury but uh, I always sort of joke I'm not from the north meaning Barrie I'm from the north meaning Sudbury (laughs) and uh, with you having visited I think you have a sense of you know a different kind of style and pace of life there's something very embedded culturally about being a northerner which has been an interesting thing uh, you know coming into this founder startup ecosystem, I always joke that, you know, it's sort of like Fargo in Silicon Valley. <laughs> we have a much more kind of casual approach to business up north and, you know, generally are very chatty as people and, uh, you know, very, very friendly and just the culture is so different. So certainly I've noticed my northern roots kind of clashing with uh, Silicon Valley uh, culture for sure. In terms of your actual question, which was, you know, a little bit about my childhood and coming of age in the North, I think I've always, uh, I I, I say this without, you know, sadness or regret, but uh, growing up, I was quite poor. I had a mother with severe illness who ended up uh, spending a good part of her life homeless, actually. And I think that's really what affected me very, very deeply as a person. And it's uh, in some ways tied to my founder story and certainly my personal story, as you mentioned, being an adoptive mom to kids out of foster care, just providing that home for children who really needed a, a place to be in family. In terms of how that ties with the founder story, I practiced, uh, you know, in various areas of law, specifically human rights and indigenous rights and things like that, wanted to adopt my kids. That lifestyle involved with being a lawyer in those kinds of areas of law is very, very intense. And so I knew I had to change my lifestyle. I gravitated towards IP and uh, was able to find a lot of flexibility with work-life balance that way and really enjoyed IP. What I was doing was uh, serving big businesses, so big multinational companies, and then serving really, really small business owners, and eventually realized there was a lot of unfairness between the two, specifically around brand ownership and and, uh, limited access for small businesses uh, in terms of proactive things like trademark clearance and trademark protection, and so that's why, uh, you know, Halu exists really is that I had such a strong uh, instinct around fairness and and economic justice and, you know, people who don't access economic opportunity to be able to flourish in our economy.
0: So, so I, I may be a little ignorant, but, you know, it doesn't strike me as the most common path for someone, you know, living in Sudbury with issues with their mother and growing up poor to land up in law so so how did that how did that happen
1: yeah i think again it's just that um, feeling and i see it in in one of my kids actually <laughs> that feeling when you're a kid and and you think okay i'm living these circumstances and i'm seeing a parent suffer and i'm seeing our family suffer and i'm seeing disparity i'm seeing economic disparity i'm seeing dis- disparity all over so it brings up justice issues. It brings up strong, a very, very strong feeling about what's there and not, what is equitable and not. And I think that uh, really drove me to law very reluctantly. I actually started off uh, wanting to be a documentary filmmaker I'm going to film school. And then I ended up working at the CDC and the NFP and various other places in media and um, my father, who was involved in my life, had told me many times, you know, you have this thing about fairness, <laughs> and you actually have a thing about breaking rules because you feel that rules are not always fair or just. And so I have a feeling you're going to end up in law. And it's interesting, this exact story came up in a, another podcast that I did last week. But my middle son has a very similar instinct, and I attribute that to his life being similar to mine. He sort of spent time in shelter and had experienced uh, disparity, had seen, you know, his parents uh, sort of not sort of, uh, in a sense, suffer uh, because of systems or be affected by unfair systems. And so I think that really drove him to of have these instincts around law and death justice, and he's having those tendencies that brought me to
0: law. So, so you know, I'm a huge believer in this kind of underdog story. You know, I, I've spoken about my story coming as an immigrant being pretty severely bullied, and I've always spoken yeah. about how I've used the chip on my shoulder as a real positive fuel in my life. But I always, I'm always wondering when I speak to others that maybe have have faced adversity in their lives. When do you believe that chip on your shoulder is, is positive and, and, and when does it become negative?
1: Oh, yeah, and that's such a fine balance. And, you know, I, I think I've, I've got this theory that many uh, problems, business problems even, should be approached through a trauma lens. And uh, this kind of ties to your question that I think that certain groups of people, certainly we can identify as um, people who've experienced Trauma, you know, whether it's because you're racialized or have naturally experienced discrimination, because we live in a culture that, you know, is is encourages discrimination. It's sort of kind of set up for these things, and so uh, you can certainly identify certain groups. But I, I approach certain conflict situations in business with this trauma lens, or I notice in myself of. You know, there is that idea that you've experienced adversity and so it makes you stronger. But you've experienced adversity, uh, but it also makes you traumatized. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. you can overreact, you can react the wrong way, you can be sort of perceived to some extent as being more aggressive than others. But uh, really, it's because you've got a history of people being aggressive with you as an example, and so I think there are a lot of ways that this kind of presents in a negative way, certainly in life and and definitely in business. So you know, it's it's something I'm very uh, focused on as a leader. Uh, we have an extremely diverse uh, staff. 90% of our leadership are underrepresented. 50% of our uh, tech team are women. Uh, we have women leaders on the tech side. And on and on with that, I feel as a leader, I always have to take a trauma lens to any kind of, uh, you know, difficult situation that might arise. Uh, and, and I think that's very effective. I think we should all do that a lot more.
0: How, about, how, how would you recommend a leader do that if they haven't gone through trauma?
1: Yeah, and I think that's the advantage of diverse leaders, to be honest, is that it is very difficult uh, to, to learn trauma approaches unless you truly understand trauma in the first place. So it may be one of the ways that, you know, a diverse leader is actually in a, in a position of advantage vis-a-vis somebody was not.
0: Yeah. So, so switching gears a little bit, Julie, I, I, I was reading your story and you had mentioned that, you know, your, your former legal profession was not conducive to the life you wanted to live. And you started, uh, Hallie with, uh, you know, two other co-founders. One of the things that was really interesting and, and, and something that I haven't explored, uh, with anyone else is the role that, you know, a lot of these accelerators, incubators played in your journey. It was, a, it was an interesting article that I read about some of the, some of those accelerators and incubators that, uh, that you attribute quite a lot of value to. Maybe you could talk about, you know, a, that the the, the overarching uh, role that they played, and, and and B, you know, what you'd recommend others do when looking for programs to help uh, facilitate their growth at the early stages.
1: Yeah, I, I love this question. It's an amazing question. Uh, I think it's really important to uh, kind of view accelerators as um, you know steps in a journey. And I really encourage accelerators to absolutely anybody starting on an entrepreneurship journey. And there's always some type of accelerator incubator that fits whatever it is you're building. So it doesn't have to be kind of deep AI that you're building. Um, there are accelerators or programs uh, in every city, practically either through the city or through universities that are there to assist, any entrepreneur, uh, no matter whether it's a tech focus or uh, a, another type of business. And I really, really encourage them. So, and I think it's important to understand accelerators as, you know, very journey focused or step focused. The first step for us initially, you know, again, coming from a very unusual background in some senses for a high tech founder. <laughs> Is I'm a domain expert and, and, you know, I was a mom, uh, and again, from way north, Ontario, this, this kind of culture, this world wasn't especially natural to me. I think business is very natural to me. I think hard work and, and long, long hours are very natural to me. And so all of those qualities were there, but I needed, uh, something to ease me into this journey. So the first incubator accelerator that we participated in was the accelerator center in Kitchener-Waterloo which is an absolutely amazing program for very, very early stage. So we did their AC Jumpstart program. It came with money, which we desperately needed at the time. Any accelerator program that gives you money and doesn't take equity, I strongly, strongly encourage. I think those are really, really helpful uh, in early stages. It sort of got me used to some of the language around building an AI startup, some of the culture around it. But in a very kind of stage appropriate way, we were picked up really, really early on by Google for their Women Founders Accelerator. That was for the first North American Women Founders Google Accelerator. And it was wonderful. That was really uh far, far more immersion, but very guided and very, um, I think maybe because it had a women founders uh, focus and and they really encouraged a lot of time between the um, uh, cohort founders that it was an extremely supportive experience and very guided for that next stage of the journey. And then uh we had a, a, the Trade Commissioner's Office in Silicon Valley reach out to us and say, "Would you be interested in applying for our CTA?" It said the Canadian Trade Commissioner's kind of accelerator program in Silicon Valley, and we said, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> That's where I really felt that you know Fargo and Silicon Valley experience because that was kind of breakneck speed with that high, high energy kind of Silicon Valley vibe of everything moves at uh, super speed, and and everybody talks very fast, and you get to the point, and you, uh, I remember, you know, one of the uh, mentors through that program saying to me, you need to be more uh, sort of aggressive, <laughs> he said, you need to be more arrogant and aggressive, and you need to be likably so, but you need to, you know, find it in you to be that way. I still struggle with that, and I'm not sure I agree with that advice, uh, you know, I think all of the stuff that I'd done through accelerators up to that point had prepared me enough for that uh, experience. And I'd done the right kind of, this is my first step accelerator, this is my second step, step accelerator, here's my third step accelerator, and on and on. So it's a really stepped journey-based thing.
0: I think one of the things I read was that, you know, these, these accelerators, especially the ones, like, like you said, that gave you some money, Really helped you to hold off on accepting the the first the first investor that walked through the door. You know, talk to me about the importance of taking the right money. I mean, people hear anecdotally about you know you really want to take the right money. You know, I I would use your example about the the cultural difference between you know potentially yourself and uh, VCs from the Valley. Uh, you know maybe that's not always a reason to not take their capital because they may bring a, you know a different thought process to the table but i do think you need to find money that is or investors that are extremely aligned with a how you want to conduct your business how you want to grow your culture uh, how quickly you want to grow you know all those sorts of things i think people really discount the intangibles that come with an investor and they just look at it as i'm looking to raise x dollars and who cares where it comes from and i I tell everyone that that listens, I'm like, I cannot tell you how much more the intangibles matter than the dollars that they're actually providing.
1: Yeah, no question about that. There's no question about that. And in fact, what I uh, encourage early stage founders to do is spend at least as much time pursuing key strategic angel investors as you do VCs when it does come time to raise money. Because those key strategic angels are the people who have more time. When they sign on with you, they're really aligning with your mission, with what you're building. They typically will cut a check only when they know that they have value. There's something about what you're building that they think that they can help you with. And so those have been the really key strategic angels in the very early days for us. I think, you know, you can attribute to to our success and survival really as a startup. I can't imagine looking back, for example, we had uh, Erin Zipes, who uh, formerly was VP Legal and Corporate Secretary for Shopify. And I look back and I think, could we have survived as a startup without her influence, without her advice? And it wasn't her money. It was her energy, it was her time, it was her experience and wisdom, her connections, uh, things like that, that, that really made a difference and an impact. I could name 20 people like that. <laughs> Our cap table is with
0: I couldn't agree more with you. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs that I speak to would completely agree with you. But what I hear very often is they, you know, they turn to me and they say, I don't really have a network. I'm a, you know, maybe a younger startup CEO. How do I even go about finding those individuals? What, what advice would you give to those people that, that are kind of lost as to where to even start?
1: Yeah, I think incubators and accelerators are a great place to start. There are lots of pockets of communities, and uh, it's just a matter of kind of digging to find them. I'm, you know, as a person, an absolutely excellent Google searcher. (laughs) So become that really, really good internet searcher and you will find those pockets of communities. They are, you know, if you're just starting from day one, building any type of business, like I said, there's, you know, there's the uh, universities are a great place to start. There are usually departments within municipal uh, government uh, that focus on this. Uh, There are organizations that are specific to women uh, entrepreneurs, for example. So doing a lot of searching initially to find those communities. LinkedIn is a platform that I leverage heavily. Uh, I build community constantly. It's almost addictively building community on LinkedIn. And I can't tell you How many opportunities and, and how much of my network comes from that platform?
0: Well, let's, let's talk about the right and wrong way because I, I, I never had this discussion with you, but I, I know that you're going to agree with me. The unsolicited, uh, you know, solicitation that happens on LinkedIn every day is one of my biggest pet peeves. And I think people really lose sight of the fact that like to build a meaningful relationship, it's pretty important that you don't start with an ask. You know, and it's, it's it's about that authentic desire to get to know one another and see how, you know, you could be beneficial to them as well. And and the amount of, of what I would call spam that I get on LinkedIn is just increasing daily.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that uh, you assumed I would agree with you because I actually totally disagree with you.
0: Interesting. OK. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, interesting. And I think, again, I'll bring it to a connection point to my childhood being that I grew up with a parent who, uh was asking people like my teachers and various other people in the community for money a lot. And that would be the first interaction she would have with people was to ask for money. And for me, I never mind that somebody is soliciting me at all. I feel like we are all in this together. If I don't like what you're asking, if I don't, if I don't have anything of value to... To get back to you, or I can't fulfill your ask, or it's not right for me. That's fine. I just decline. It doesn't bother me at all. And I don't think that, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm pretty, uh, cut to the chase and, and very, uh, sort of, um, you know, I, I find that this may be a Northern versus Southern Ontario thing as well. In the North, we just say what we mean and we ask for what we want and, I found that abrupt when I came to university in Southern Ontario that, you know, people would think sometimes I was sort of impolite in a sense. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of kind of couching or, you know, there's sort of a fakeness almost to like this idea of like, there's a special way that you have to approach asking somebody for (laughs) what you're really asking. I just say you're selling windows and you do need windows. (laughs) I'll say no if I don't. And I'm going to ask you the same
0: thing. You need AI. I think you may be an outlier because most of the executives that I speak to, you know, tend to agree with me. I mean, I'm not looking for a big song and dance. I'm actually South African. So I value directness uh, probably more than most. But, um, you know, these canned copy and paste, you know, solicitation, I just, I can't stand it. I really, I think it's... uh, I think it's, uh, there's, I, I find it to be quite lazy, to be honest with you. I mean, I've, I've had to hustle for everything that I get and I, I'm a sales guy. So I appreciate the art of selling, but I do think that establishing a relationship with someone when you're asking them as an example to become a potential strategic angel investor, I don't think that you're going to get very far by sending a canned, uh, you know, eight liner to, to someone that, uh, you know, could that could, 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 add that kind of value to your business.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We'll probably agree to disagree here, but I've, I've gotten several investors through ex, like exactly the approach that you're talking, a hmm. full cut and paste of, you know, here's the exact number of characters I can fit into a LinkedIn request. Like a, I don't even use the sales navigator platform or anything like that. I just do a connection request I put in my template, <laughs> like hi so and so, and that's the only thing I doubt, and I send it out like mad. I have been successful. Maybe it's just me, uh, and I've also hired most of my staff that way. I don't post jobs. I I scout on LinkedIn and I approach people directly, and I just say what I want to say, which is you have a great background. Are you looking for a job? Because I'd be interested in interviewing you, and that's it. Uh, so I I don't. Everyone has their approach, but I guess for me, uh, I don't mind people being efficient. <laughs> I don't mind if it's a template, and I don't mind if it's sort of on mass. If I am interested, if it adds value, I'll respond. If it doesn't add value, it's not for me. I just ignore it, and it doesn't irk me at all to have received it. I, I'm my aunt has an expression that she says, everybody has their street corner. And, you know, she told me that from a young girl. And I, I, I agree with that. We're all equal. We're all in the same space and we're all at the end of the day doing the exact same thing, which is surviving in this world.
0: Yeah. Okay. Look, that's fair. I, I, uh, I, I never, uh, you know, never thought of it that way, but uh, I I take your point. So Julie, I want to, I'm going to say a few words that I never thought I'd say together. And uh, I would love your uh, your views on it. And it's uh, the metaverse IP law. So, you know, if you would have told me that we, I'd be speaking about uh, the metaverse and the, uh, the, the law associated with uh, protecting one's IP, three years ago, I would have laughed, but now that's very real and it makes total sense to me. So talk to me about that area. I know it's something that you spend some time focusing on.
1: Yeah, well, Web3 came to me <laughs> initially, we built our product very much for web 2. And then, what we there were a couple of things that happened. There was this fabulous in, influencer who uh, approached us and wanted to file a, a, an extraordinary number of trademarks, <laughs> and then tried to get my attention a lot on LinkedIn and said, uh, You know, trademarks are a big thing for NFTs. And I didn't know what any of that meant. <laughs> and I kind of thought, okay, here is that person really heavily trying to sell me something on LinkedIn. I'm not sure about it. I had my staff look into it. They said, yeah, there's something to this. And then I kind of did some research on my own, and I realized that Board of Club projects, Larva Labs projects, had 38 trademarks filed in association with that uh, collection. And I thought, wow, that's absolutely astounding to me as a practitioner that would be on the level of what for example lg <laughs> as a company might file in a year for you know what they're what they're uh, building around new brands and things like that so i thought okay if we've got creators in this web 3 or metaverse you know which i didn't understand and i i don't think anybody truly understands even now filing this huge number of trademarks there's got to be a reason behind it I dug into it, and what I ultimately concluded was that um, Web3 uh, builds a, a, an economy that is that is very novel, uh, in the sense that absolutely anybody, including you know tweens, <laughs> basically uh, can put up uh, you know what what I'm sort of describing as a metaverse lemonade stand and become entrepreneurs. The barriers to entrepreneurship is so, so low because what we're selling and trading and buying in, in this space is intellectual property. So they're digital goods that you can create with an internet connection and a computer. And I thought, okay, well, fundamentally Web3 is all about intellectual property. Creators are brands in Web3. And everybody is going to have the ability to become a creator. And, and most people will eventually. And so what that means is most people will own a brand in this future economy. And that's a really uh, incredible thought for an intellectual property lawyer.
0: So, I mean, you're on, it's interesting, You're you're, you're in a traditional business being law and you know, trying to be a disruptor in that space. You know, there's some young people I'm sure listening to this that are in their in the journey of, of becoming a lawyer or early in their careers of law. What would you recommend those those individuals do? Uh, you know, where would you focus your efforts? I mean, obviously, IP is uh, is is the uh, the area that you know well. But are there other other sides of of law that you would recommend others? pay special or close attention to as they start to build out their careers?
1: Well, lawyers are an interesting sort of breed of people, I find. there are lawyers with uh, very different incentives uh, to becoming lawyers. So certainly have met the lawyers who are looking for, you know, the the best revenue potential. And uh, there I would say things like family law are fabulous focuses. But uh, certainly anything in Web3 will have that character for sure. But uh, you know, from a an innovation or technology uh, standpoint, so if that's your interest in, you know, what is the world going to look like, then I think you know, blockchain is is really a phenomenal focus area for sure. I love to see lawyers become a justice-focused lawyers, <laughs> so I really get excited, uh, and I follow many young lawyers on LinkedIn. They're probably Wondering why I follow them, but many young lawyers who are taking paths that are really interesting in terms of, you know, indigenous rights and things like that. So uh, it's a strange question to ask me because I'm probably going to veer from, you know, my own space, my own practice focus to, to, to say, you know, where I would encourage people to go is is in places that have an impact on humans, I guess.
0: So last question i want to ask you is going to be a little bit off the wall and a little bit different. But, uh, you know, based on the conversation we've had thus far, I, I'm really interested in your opinion. And it's a very simple question. And, and, and it's why does giving back matter?
1: Yeah. Wow. That's a doozy of a question. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I,
0: I, I, I simple was, uh, was, uh, <laughs> the exact opposite of what I knew, what uh, what I knew the question would be.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are so many ways to answer that question, but I think I'll, I'll uh, kind of sort of bring it back to our company and our mission. So we have a very, very strong mission uh, as a company. We really believe that practically every single choice and decision that you make in your everyday life can impact positive change. We fundamentally believe that economic justice is the key to uh, all sorts of other types of justice. So, once we achieve true proper economic justice, that we will achieve climate justice. Uh, to give you a quick example of that, uh, you know, once we have people who uh, fundamentally have the will to care for our planet correctly, so I'm thinking of certain groups like Indigenous uh, leaders, once we have proper uh, Indigenous leaders in power, I mean, Indigenous leaders properly in power, I should uh, say that sentence that way, you know, then then I think we'll find that we have political will uh, in terms of climate change and, and various other things. So for, for me, giving back, and and being focused on positive change with every single decision that you make in your personal life, in your business life, steering a company and as a company mission creates the world that that we want to see. It's as simple as who are you going to hire for your catering uh, can can make a difference and an impact in terms of economic justice.
0: That's great. I think that's a great way to end this podcast. So uh, Julie, before you leave, you know, I'm sure there's lots of people that would love to follow along on your journey. Uh, obviously, it sounds like you're very active on LinkedIn and that they can follow you follow you there. But are there any other platforms that uh, uh, you'd recommend they check out?
1: No, I'm, I'm sadly terrible at all platforms except for LinkedIn and Facebook. <laughs> <Sounds> <laughs> so I, I have to, uh, I, I tried Twitter once and it was a disaster, but I am getting into Discord a little bit uh, just because uh, it's sort of a requirement for Web3, but LinkedIn is really the best place. But I'm, I'm always, uh, you know, uh, very open and available as much as I can be with my time. And uh, super happy to uh, to to be helpful to anybody uh, who reaches out to me. So I don't, there's not a single LinkedIn request generally that I don't accept. I, I'm open to, to all types of people everywhere. And if any, I can add value or be useful. I'm so happy to do that.
0: Well, Julie, I, I very much appreciate that. And once, once again, thanks for joining me. And until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.